You can take out your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 5. Pretty much exactly 10 years ago, almost down to the week, I, it was my first uh, you know, month here or so, and I started a sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit exactly 10 years ago. So I thought that would be a good thing to, to start back up now. It's, these are good Christian virtues to meditate on. So um, I, I have preached these here before. It's been 10 years, and I am updating the sermons quite a bit. So if you'd go back and listen online, they won't sound exactly the same for sure. But these are wonderful truths of Scripture for us to meditate on. So let's turn to Ephesians 5. I'm going to read um, 18 through 24. So I'm just doing the fruits of the Spirit, but... I want to read this kind of paragraph to get us in the context of Galatians 5. But let's pray first because we definitely need God's help in listening to and understanding his word. Let's pray. Father, we do have your word open before us and we're ready to hear from it. And we ask that you would open our ears and hearts to receive the truth of your word. Break down the walls of unbelief. And we pray your Holy Spirit would be active now as the word is read and preached. In Jesus' name, amen. So Galatians 5, verses 18 through 24. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, or kindness, rather, goodness, faithfulness gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. God's word. Sometimes I'm guessing we think that uh, if we had more money, life would be better. If we had more things that we want and, and enjoy, life would be better. We might think that life would be better if we had a sweet home, more expensive clothes, an $80,000 car, and a job that everyone envies. We often think our lives would be better if we had stuff like that. But, but I want to flip the, the coin or the switch a little bit here. Did you ever think about how good character makes life better? Patience, kindness, self-control, these virtues in your life. Did you ever think about how those things can make your life better? Because think about it. You can have several million dollars. You can have the best home in the county. You can have that $80,000 car and, and a job that everyone envies. But if you'd be an impatient, angry, cruel person who constantly lies and is drunk half the time, your life would not be good your life would not be good. But good character, like patience and kindness and self-control, those things makes life much more pleasant than wealth and possessions. 
And so as we study the fruit of the Spirit for the next couple of months, keep in mind that these Christian virtues or characteristics benefit you as you put them on display. They're, they're good for you. But they also benefit other people around you. And they please God. They bring Him glory, which is the chief thing for us to think about. So as we look at the fruit of the Spirit, remember that they are Christian virtues that glorify God, bless other people, and even benefit us in life. There are Christian virtues that glorify God, bless other people, and benefit us in life. So as we start uh, looking at the fruit of the Spirit, I want to kind of just give you a brief summary of Galatians so you know what we're looking at here. And then I'm going to kind of look at the words um, fruit and of the Spirit. And then we'll look at the first one, love. So so this is an introduction sermon, but we're going to get to the the first fruit of the Spirit, which is love today. That's kind of the plan. So many of you probably know a little bit about Galatians, uh, first of all. And remember, Paul wrote Galatians. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia in the first century. And they were thinking wrong things about the gospel, about Jesus and Jesus' work. They were starting to think in that church that you had to do certain things to be made right with God, like be circumcised if you wanted to be justified and made right with God. So Paul wrote this letter, among other things, but Paul wrote this letter to correct their view of the gospel. So early in the book, Paul says, no one will ever be justified by obeying the law. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, whether you're circumcised or not, a sinful person is saved only by faith in Jesus, not by works, but by faith alone. That's a big emphasis in Galatians. But then if you kind of fast forward to chapter 5, Paul kind of brings the implications of that truth home, and he says, Christ has set us free from the curse and demands of the law. So 5 verse 1, stand firm in that freedom that Christ has won for you. And don't submit to man-made laws and traditions again for justification. And not long before our text, in 5 verse 13, it says, You are called to freedom, brothers. So don't use your freedom as an opportunity to serve the flesh, but through love serve one another. Keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Paul will say, don't follow sinful desires. And you know that list that we read, those evil things that I read in in Galatians 5? Those are works of the flesh. Those are deeds of darkness and death. Things like sexual immorality and anger and drunkenness and jealousy. Those are deadly deeds. Do not do those things. People who do those things and never turn from them will not enter the kingdom of God. So Paul gives a warning here. But then there's the contrast. Okay, so those are pretty dark deeds of the flesh, right? Like drunkenness and and sexual sin and and anger and hostility. But then there's a contrast. But, then Paul turns on this beautiful bright light switch and says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. There's nothing dark and evil in the fruit of the Spirit. So that's kind of the context a little bit, get you into thinking about the fruit of the Spirit. Now, now think about the term fruit of the Spirit. You guys know what fruit is. Um, We went to an apple orchard yesterday. We saw a whole bunch of apples and some pumpkins and stuff. And I didn't ask the owners, but I'm guessing if I would ask them how their crop was, they would have said, it was great. We have lots of fruit. It was productive year is how they could say it. 
And similarly, in the Bible, fruit is, is often a symbol of abundance, isn't it? Be fruitful and multiply. The Bible talks about the fruit of the land, the promised land, right? It had great fruit. Or the fruit of the womb, the, the, the um, good thing that comes from, from the womb, you know, it, children. And, and the fruit is also kind of used as a metaphor in, in slightly different ways, too. Remember Psalm 1. Remember the blessed man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked? That blessed man is like a fruit-bearing tree planted by streams of water. He bears fruit. And, and fruit in that context is righteous living and good deeds. He has a productive life that bears good fruit. Jesus used the language of fruit. Can you think when and where? A good tree bears good fruit. Uh, that means a person, Jesus said, you know, a good tree bears good fruit. It means a person with a truly good heart does good things. And he bears good fruits. Or another of Jesus' teaching talks kind of about fruit and produce. Remember the parable of the soils or seeds? The seed that was sown in the good soil, it produced uh, 30, 60, and even 100-fold fruit. Good deeds. Spiritual virtues. Good living. Peace and love and kindness and gentleness and so on. The fruit of the Spirit is, is beautiful fruit. It's, it's living a godly life with all these wonderful characteristics. Patience and peace and kindness and goodness and joy. I was thinking about it. I don't know if you'd be able to find many people who would read this list, the fruit of the Spirit, and say, that's bad. Those things are bad. I mean, only a monster... <laughs> Only a monster would look through this list and say, yeah, that's, that's what we want to avoid. Those are bad things. Matthew Henry, I think some of you know who Matthew Henry is. He, was, he wrote a popular commentary way back in, the, I think, around 1700 that many people use today. Matthew Henry wrote a book with the best title. It's called The Pleasantness of a Religious Life. The Pleasantness of a Religious Life. <laughs> think about that title. It's a great title. He says a lot of good things in that book. And one thing that Matthew Henry says there, he says, if you ask a person who, by God's grace, has followed Christ and lived a religious life, he will tell you the pleasantness of that life. Because living these virtues makes life pleasant. Not just for you, but other people too. Think about it. There's satisfaction deep inside when you say no to a temptation and you do what's right and good. There's comfort and a clear conscience when you tell the truth, even when you might gain something by lying. There's pleasantness in telling the truth. Your conscience is clear. It's a wonderful thing. You could sleep at night because you did the right thing. There's pleasantness. Or, or there's fulfillment in forgiving someone rather than getting revenge. That's, that's pleasant. You can forgive someone instead of revenge, and there's pleasantness in that. And so I, I just want to repeat that. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is the way of pleasant, good, and meaningful living. 
I want you to desire the fruit of the Spirit in your own life. I want you to see the beauty and the pleasantness of living this kind of life according to the fruit of the Spirit. The psalmist even prayed something like this in Psalm 119. He said, Make me walk along the path of your commandments, for that is where my happiness is found. So fruit, it's a good thing. Pleasant thing. And it's fruit of the Spirit. What does that mean? So I th- again, I think you guys know kind of what fruit means here. It's, it's righteous, good, obedient living. But it's fruit of the Spirit. So one thing for us to think about, you know, if you're a Christian, uh, well, anybody, you can't make the soil of your heart fertile so that it grows these good fruits. So if, if you're an unbeliever and, and you don't know Christ and you don't have a new heart, it's not like you can till the soil of your heart and plant the seed in it so that you bear these good fruits. You can't do that. I can't do that if my heart or if my, the soil of my heart was not tilled. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. To use this, uh, this um, agriculture imagery, the Holy Spirit tills the soil of the heart. He plants the seed of the word and he makes it grow and bear fruit and enables us to cultivate the fruit. So it's fruit produced by the Holy Spirit. And Paul does talk a lot about the Holy Spirit's work in Galatians. You can maybe read that this week or in the next couple weeks. Just kind of focus on the work of the Holy Spirit in Galatians, and you'll see Paul's theology there. He says, um, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into the hearts of his people, so they walk by the Spirit. They're, They're led by the Spirit. And they're given the fruit of the Spirit. It's a huge topic, the work of the Spirit in our lives, right? It's more than a few sermons. But this is, even in the Old Testament, the prophets talk about the Spirit and a new heart. Ezekiel is where God said, I will give you a new heart. I will put my Spirit in you and cause you to walk in my commands. Or Christ said before he left, when I leave, I will give you my Holy Spirit and he will bring truth and give you life. And so when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, the reality behind this is that the Holy Spirit is is the one who changes a dead heart and brings life to a heart and makes it productive and bear fruit. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. He regenerates sinful people, gives them repentance and faith, and they start to produce fruits because the Spirit's at work in their hearts and minds and lives. And when the Spirit's at work in a person's heart and mind and life, that person's united to Jesus in such a way that they're able to produce fruit. You guys remember Jesus' imagery about the vine and the branches? Jesus said in John 15, If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And apart from me, you can do nothing. So that's kind of the theological background here. The Spirit unites us to Christ gives us new life, and works in us and helps us produce the fruits of the Spirit. That's why the Westminster Confession of Faith said, the Christian's ability to do good works is not of ourselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. Not that Christians can perfectly do the fruits of the Spirit. That's not what Paul is saying. We know that we still struggle in sin. Even even the most mature and, and godly Christian has a lot of sin things to struggle with. But if the Spirit's at work in a person's heart and life, these fruits will actually be on display to some extent in a real way. They're fruits of the Holy Spirit, produced by the Spirit. 
Okay, so that's a, that's a background, pretty straightforward, and maybe some of you have thought about those things before. But what's the first fruit of the Spirit? Look in 22. What is it? Love. So what do you think? Did Paul put love first on purpose, or was it just a random list that the order, they're all important, doesn't, the order doesn't matter? I would say that Paul put it there on purpose. Love is chief among the fruits. Why do I say that? Where's the biblical background for that? 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest of these is love. There's faith, there's hope, and there's love, but the greatest is love. Or even before Paul, what did Jesus say? What's the greatest commandment? Love. God, love neighbor. That goes back to the Old Testament. So you you see there's some biblical background here. We can say that love is first because it's chief among Christian virtues. Love is... so, So if there's love in a person's heart, all these other virtues come from that love. If you don't love, in in other words, if you don't love, you can't really be kind and peaceful and good. But if you love, all these other things just come naturally or spiritually. Now, when we talk about love in the Bible, so the first fruit of the Spirit is love. And when we talk about love in the Bible, we, we always have to remember first God's love. God's perfect love. God is love, the Bible says. When we talk about love in in a Christian and biblical sense, we can't truly understand love if we don't start with God's love and kind of look into it and get what it means. Because if you talk about love and you start with people's love, you have an imperfect standard to start with. Even a Christian has true love But it's not a perfect love. Our love, human love, is wavering and changing. None of us have flawless and strong and unchanging love. I think uh, many of us may have learned, just on a practical level, many of us have probably learned what love looks like from our parents' relationship. And maybe that was good. And you can be very, very thankful for that. But it wasn't a perfect love that we had for each other. So you don't have a perfect example of love, even in the best parents' love for each other and their kids. There's still some mistakes and sin. And also, if you learned about love from watching your parents and they did not love well, you certainly don't want to start with that kind of uh, definition of love. So when we talk about love as Christians, the source and standard of of love is God's love. That's where we start and finish, I guess. And you know, if you did have a bad example of love growing up, it's really tough. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? And, And I'm sure you have difficult memories if you grew up in a family where your parents didn't truly love each other or their kids. That's it's even heartbreaking to think about. But I do want you to know that there is such a thing as good, true, perfect, and strong love. That's God's love. The Bible teaches that God's love is a relentless, redeeming love that is steadfast and unchangeable. 
Jeremiah said, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And we see God's love on display. His passionate, self-giving, redeeming, relentless love. We see it on display. Where do you see God's love on display the most? At the cross, right? Where God loved sinful people so much that he gave his son to die to rescue the sinful people. And earlier in Galatians, in chapter 2, Paul said, Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. A self-sacrificial, redeeming love of God. Or the Apostle John says in his first letter, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. That's where we start when we talk about love. One, uh, maybe a few of you know this term. One ragamuffin said, God's love is never based on our performance, never conditioned by our moods of elation or depression. The furious love of God knows no shadow or alteration or change. It is reliable and always tender. That's God's love for us. So once we think about God's love and get some biblical background on it, then we can start to talk about our love, the love that we have for God and for others. Because God is a standard of love. But the Bible teaches that the only way we can truly love is if we've been first loved by God. Right? 1 John 4, we love because he first loved us. We couldn't even love if God had not loved us. But because he loves us, he gives his spirit to sinful people, changes their hearts, and enables them to truly love. God's love, this is what Paul says in Romans 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which means that people with the Spirit working in their heart, they can actually and truly love. I just want to pause there and, and drink that truth in. So if you're a believer, it means you are loved and you are able to love. Now, if you're not a Christian, pray and ask God to change your heart, and that can be true for you. It's not like it's unavailable for you. God can change your heart. Ask him to. Look to Christ. But for those who believe in in Christ, it means you are loved and you are able to love. Those are two of the best things in life. To be loved and to be able to love. Imagine your life if you weren't loved and you weren't able to love. Not a good life. I mean, you could could be the wealthiest person in the world, but your life would still stink because you wouldn't be loved and you wouldn't be able to truly love. But when we're loved and able to love, it makes life beautiful. And meaningful. 
probably some of you have gone through periods of feeling unloved. It's another hard reality that comes in life. I mean, have you really had a point in your life where you were laying in bed at night and you were in tears because you thought, I'm not loved? It's such a terrible way to live. Or maybe some of you went to bed at night and think, I I don't have anyone that I love. I don't have any friends. It's another terrible way to live. So I want you to remember this. Dear Christian, you are loved and you are able to love. And that's what goes back to, uh, if you can go back to Galatians 5 verse 1, Paul says, for freedom Christ has set us free. So stand firm in that. And then if you go to 5 verse 13, you are called to freedom. So don't use your freedom to you know, serve your sinful flesh, but love others with your freedom. So, so you are loved, and Christ has set you free so that you can love. Use your freedom to love other people and serve them, not to serve your own sinful desires. Christ didn't set you free from sin and death so that you could serve yourself. But he's broken the chains off your heart and enabled you to love others. So serve others in love. Use that freedom Christ has won for you. Isn't that good news? This is, this is the, the, the core stuff of life that makes you get up in the morning. I'm loved and I'm able to love. Praise God. This is a blessing that makes life sweet. Now let's think about... Uh, um, as we wind down in a couple minutes here, Scripture does, we change the angle a little bit, Scripture does call Christians to love, right? We are enabled to love by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is an awesome thing. And so we're called to love. Who are we called to love? First, you know what? You can say it. God. And neighbor. And even our enemies, Right? So that's kind of the order of our loves. And we know we should love God first. First John 5, by this we know that we're children of God, when we love God. So the hearts that enable to love has God as the first love. And if you love God, not, not with a perfect love. Again, we, we, we're humans. We can't love with a perfect, flawless love. But if you have genuine love for God, that's a sign that the Holy Spirit's working in you. And if you can say, I love you, Lord. And isn't that, Abraham Kuyper called um, this kind of love for God, like fellowship with God. And Abraham Kuyper said, the marrow of all religion is fellowship with the eternal God. And in this fellowship, it is only love for God in which the brightness of gold glitters. So, so at the heart of one of the, the main parts of our Christian faith is our love for God in a personal way because he loved us. It's a personal, loving relationship with our Heavenly Father, and we love Him because He hears our cries for help, like the psalmist says. We love Him because He forgives us so freely. We love Him because He promises us eternal life in the new creation. We love Him because He says He won't let us go. We love Him because He says He'll provide for us and so on. We love God for who He is and what He's done. And so the fruit of the Spirit, though, it's not just talk, is it? It's also deed, action. So our love for God should show up in life. 
we should obey him. That's how we show his love. What did Jesus say in, in Psalm, or I'm sorry, in the New Testament? He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The psalmist says, oh, how I love your word. We show love for God in worship and in prayer. We show love for God by loving what is true and good and beautiful. So the fruit of the Spirit, love God first, enabled by the Holy Spirit. But then we're also called to love others. 1 John 4. So we love others, and the priority is kind of Christians, but all others as well. 1 John 4 says, We have this commandment from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother, brother or sister. Jesus said, that's how you know, that's how people will know if you're my disciples, if you love each other. If you have this fruit of the Spirit on display in your Christian life for other Christians, people will know that you're disciples of Jesus. And so this is the practical side of things too, isn't it? You love other Christians. You love other Christians. With a 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. That's not rude or arrogant, but is patient and kind. And Scripture even says that our love for other Christians should be so strong that we're even willing to lay down our lives for them. That's 1 John 3. That's what kind of love it is. It's a love that reflects the love of God for us, right? We love other people in a way like that. So think about that in your own life. Are you showing true love to other Christians? That's a priority in this church's life, right? It should be because it's such a big command in Scripture. Our goal is not to be the fastest growing church in the area. Our goal is not to be the most politically conservative church in the area or the most socially active church in the area. One of our goals should be that we display the love of Christ for each other in such a way that people say, they are disciples. They are followers of Jesus. So you've got to think about this. Is there someone in this church family who you haven't shown love to? Maybe you've avoided for different reasons. Is there some Christian that you're kind of at odds with? Or that you need to reconcile with or help. Bring this down into your own life. Show love here. And of course, it expands to love your neighbor. I I won't give you all the details. I think you can kind of think about this. Who is your neighbor? Well, anyone you come into contact with. The woman who delivers your mail or grooms your dog. The guy at work that you're doing a project with and he's always 10 minutes late. The people in your class at school or the university. Those are the people you're called to love, help, be kind to, and so on. And finally, love for enemies. Love your enemies even. Jesus says, you heard the saying, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You say, wait a minute, love your enemy? The guy who is terribly cruel to me? The answer is yeah. Yes. And because for us, it's based on the gospel, isn't it? That while we were still enemies, Christ laid down his life for us out of love. So that's the kind of love that we take to the situation where we do have an enemy. 
I'm not saying it's easy. Or is it? Actually, on my emails, I think I have it. Well, I do have a quote by Augustine, and I think that's helpful. Sometimes when, it talks about, when we talk about loving others, you're saying, that's very, very hard. I don't know if I can do it. Well, first of all, yes, you can because the Holy Spirit's working in you. And also because of the, what love is. Augustine put it this way. Love, is make, love makes all the hardest and most distressing things altogether easy. Love makes it easy. If you truly love someone, it will be easy to show it. Something to think about. All right, well, in a moment, we're going to pray about this in our own lives. I want to end with this great thought by Oz Guinness. Um, he, he wrote a book about, uh, he wrote a lot of books, but one of the books he wrote was about signals of transcendence in the world where people come to something greater than themselves, and it might trigger them to think about God in a good way. And one of those signals of transcendence that Oz Guinness said is in the world, he said that's love. He said that true love is, is, is a proof of the existence of God, a signal of transcendence, that there is such a thing as love in the world. And Guinness said, Love is the highest, most powerful, and most beautiful energy known to humans, the surest and richest bond between two people. Love will always rise from the rubble. Love will always rise from the rubble. It is an undeniable signal of transcendence, a signal of the existence of a God who loves. Let's pray.